We are, I'm excited today, we're wrapping up the series that we've been in. So we've been in this series called Arise. And so today is the last one of the series and I'm excited. This is a series we've been re-articulating and redefining who we are as a church. So this is about defining the identity that God has given us. And then last weekend we had this great time where a huge chunky, thanks for being here, gathered and we brainstormed and we put ideas together to try and think about what does this look like as we move forward into the new year year, uh, living this stuff out in the community where God has placed us. Um, and it's exciting to see the things that, that we talked about. It's exciting to see the unity that existed in the room and the overlap and all the concepts that people were bringing. So I'm excited um, about what that means and where we're going to go. Um, what I want to do this morning, though, I want to spend just the first little part of the message recapping where we've been so far in this series um, before I spend the time geeking out on a Hebrew word, which is what I like to do. Uh, you all know this by now. Um, and we'll look at one word that I think is a really fitting end to the series that we're looking at. So we can put the diagram up on the screen that we've been using. Um, so this is where we've been so far um, in this series. We're talking about the word arise. And so we began week one by defining this word arise that we're using to describe our discipleship process. And we looked at, I mean, a, a gazillion ways uh, that this word appears in scripture. It refers to everything from responding to the call of God, to stepping into action, to the cry of intercession as we ask God to arise on our behalf. It's a word that refers to healing as God moves and heals in our lives. It's a word that refers to resurrection um, as, as, as God brings Jesus from the dead, raises him to the right hand of the Father, and then allows that power to work in us. So this is a big word uh, that, that has loads of implications for us. And so we're capturing all of that by labeling our discipleship process arise. Um, and so from there, we broke this down um, into three principles. So the three principles are to be true to Christ, to be kind to people and to be sent to the world. So if this is gonna be your church, when I ask you what are our three principles, I want you to be able to say to me, true to Christ, kind to people, sent to the world. Um, and as I've said so many times already, that is taken from the great commandment and the great commission. So this is what every church in the world should be doing. And if you've been a part or you, you visit a church that doesn't do these things, please run. Um, so the great commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We call that being true to Christ and being kind to people. And then the Great Commission says, therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we call that being sent to the world. So we're going to be true to Christ, we're going to be kind to people, and we're going to be sent to the world. After we talked about those principles, we talked about the posture that we're going to adopt as a church as we do this. And it's a posture of grace and truth. So John tells us that when Jesus arrived, he arrived full of grace and truth. And there are lots of churches that like to swing to either one of those spectrums. We like to be a grace church, so anything goes. It doesn't matter if it lines with God's word or not. And then you've got those churches that are like truth churches. We just tell you as it is, and we don't care if you like it or not. And if it hurts you, tough luck. Um, we want to be a church that balances both of those, like Christ, full of grace and full of truth. So in everything we do, figuring out how do we love and serve and honor the person that God has placed in front of us while we embrace the fullness of what Scripture teaches and all of the good and bad, all the things that people like and all the things that they don't. And we want to embrace both of those in their wholeness. And that's a hard journey to walk because sometimes you're going to have to speak truth and it's going to hurt someone but grace is the container for truth. So if we've done enough work to show them love and care for them, we'll have the freedom to speak the truth in. And then we wanna be a church that's willing to receive that, right? 
We want to receive grace. We want to be vulnerable and honest with people and receive healing grace from them. We want to be people who are ready to receive the truth when it's spoken to us. So three principles, one posture, and then six practices. Uh, We could pick a million different things to do, but we're choosing six practices that we can invest energy in that we believe if we do this will really help us become a lot more like Jesus. So the first of these is, is the practice of prayer. And so here's the question that goes with prayer as we lean into prayer. How do we as a church establish rhythms that will help us to call on God and see his will done in our lives? Kerry mentioned some of them. We gather on a Tuesday to pray. Uh, We gather on a Sunday morning before the service to intercede for the service and for the community. Uh, There are small groups that meet where people are praying. I know many of you are praying individually and together. Um, But what are the things that we can do to lean into this? The value of prayer is why for the last six months, the leadership team has been reading books about discernment and reflecting on how do we listen to God better? How do we lean into prayer better? How do we understand what is our flesh and what is him leading us in what what it is that we need to do? It's why we're talking about setting up a prayer room where we can have designated space in the building for people to come and gather and learn how to pray more and engage with God differently. And where we can set aside seasons in the calendar of the year where we can come together and intercede and ask God to move. Um, It's about individually us developing a conversational relationship with God and us corporately establishing rhythms where we're coming together, knowing that where two or three gather in agreement, God moves, and that when his church moves corporately in prayer, God hears and moves in a very powerful way. So number one was prayer. Number two was creativity. What does creativity look like for a church? What does it look like in the way we worship? What's it look like in the way we set up? What's it look like in the way we paint and decorate? What's it look like in the activities we do out in the community as we educate and train people in artistic expression? You know, Hollywood has been very successful in driving the agenda of the world. And it's it's an organization built on creativity, story writing, music, film, all of these things that drive stories and communicate to the world around about us a, a value. What's it look like for the church to start recovering some of that stuff? What's it look like for us uh, to, to be recapturing story, rearticulating story? What's it look like for us to find the, the gifts that God has given us? Some of them are like truly artistic, like card making and music and quilt making and those sorts of things. But there's other types of creativity that we step into as we speak and as we create environments, as we set up our home to welcome people. Um, You know, we're very, very creative when it comes to negative self-talk, aren't we? We're very, very creative when it comes to justifying our sin. (laughs) What if God took that creativity and put it towards the work of Jesus in the world? What if this church became a place where we tapped in to our creative purpose? And rather than being consumers of culture, we as a church began to shape the culture round about us by the stories and the artifacts that we release into society. Number three, hospitality. What does it look like for a church like this to become a place where people from all walks of life come in, are met, are seen, are known and are loved and in that place encounter the transforming power of Jesus? What would it look like if rather than our church being focused around we gather here on a Sunday to worship and preach, what if our church was about all of these little groups of people gathering in homes over a meal? 
Encouraging one another with the truth of Jesus. Knowing one another. Walking alongside one another. Welcoming strangers in to, to gather around this table to find a sense of family and a sense of belonging. belonging. What if that was more about what our church was? And what if we directed our money and our time and our building space to all those agencies outside where we can share this space with them and welcome them in so that we can partner with them and be more effective at welcoming and loving the community around about? Number four was justice. God has established his church to be a vehicle of justice in the world. I like to think of it the other way, to be honest. God has established the church to be an instrument that stands against the injustices that we see in the world. Primarily, it starts when we're on our knees in prayer, crying out for God to move. But then it's in the work that we do as we go out and we look at the needs in the community and we fight and we challenge the brokenness. The church in history has always been most fruitful and most successful when the outside world has watched them step into the justice arena. When they love the unlovely, when they minister to the sick, and when Christians move onto leper islands to minister to them and lose their own life where no one else in the world would be willing to go near. It's happening in India right now during COVID where no one wants to go near a village where, where people are infected and the church has gone in and, and uh, providing counseling and funerals and covering the expenses and the church is blowing up because the heart of God is seen when we step in to areas of justice. What if we as a church were known in the community? So when people said Alliance Bible Church, they said that's that really generous church down the street where people are welcome. My friend went there and was loved. My friend went there and was helped. That church is always out here serving what a, like, I'm not a believer, but I love what that church is doing. And if churches could be more like that, I'd want to be a part of something like that. What if our church could be one of those places? Number five, learning. What does it truly look like to adopt a learning posture? Not just sit in a room and learn some facts about the Bible, but to truly learn, to encounter him, to hear his voice, to confront our sinfulness. What does it look like as a person of learning to step out into the world where we, where we are uh, confronting the conflicts in our life, where we're making peace, where relationships are broken? What's it look like if we're an agency and a body that is training and equipping people in the skills that they need for life, where young people are learning how to adult, where people are learning emotional resilience in a world that wants to tear them down? And what if we were active and using the gifts and the passions and the skills that we have to create a center here where people come in, they find what they need, and they go out into the world a better citizen and a better lover of Jesus, a better husband, a better wife, a better father, a better boss, a better employee. What if we really stepped into learning? And the last one, mission. How do we prioritize not the work of justice, but the work of evangelism, both here and far? as we become active in sharing the gospel, equipped to be effective, that when your coworker asks you about the gospel, you don't just hit them over the head with biblical truth, but you've learned how to hear the cry of their heart and take the truth of Scripture and work it into their soul in a way that ministers to their deepest need. What if we as a church were planting churches here in the city 
Uh, they were planting churches in other places in the U.S. that were partnering with agencies, planting churches in other countries and cultures so that people and tribes and tongues that do not currently have Jesus would be walking with Jesus and, and new people groups would be worshiping him. What if, as a church, we were to step into these things? Does this sound like all right? Is this like, <laughs> is this like lame? This is who we're trying to become as a church. This is the identity we're steeping in. These are the values that we're saying as part of this church, we're going to press into these areas and we're going to open ourselves up to Jesus to do the work that he wants to do in our midst. So what I want to do with the rest of the time that we have, I want to look at one Hebrew word that appears a handful of times in Scripture that I think is the most fitting way that we as a church can respond and set ourselves up for what it is that God wants to do next. Um, so I'm going to fly through some biblical characters. Uh, so it might feel a little fire hydrant I hope it's not. Um, but the Hebrew word I want to look at today is this word, hineni. And, oh, our screens are not working, so you can't see it, right? Ah. Um, well, it, it's going to come, and you're going to see it at some point. Eric, thanks for working back there to fix it. You know, we have had no technical issues for so long, and then everything decided that today is the day it's going to break. So I think God wants us wrapping up. He wants us nervous, not God. Satan wants us nervous as we wrap up this series. I think Satan wants uh, Reuben a little nervous as he leads, because he knows when we worship, when we get excited, uh, there's nothing that can stop us. So, so the Hebrew word we're going to look at is this word, hineni, and it, you are used to it in Scripture by the exclamation, here I am. So it's a word that's translated, here I am. Literally, the word is the word, behold, with the suffix on the end, me. So it's characters in the Bible where God asks a question and essentially they go, look at me, <laughs> right? Behold me, I'm over here, I'm ready. Um, it's, it's a word that is the opposite to what happens in a normal classroom environment or teaching environment where you go, here's a question. And what chapter of the Bible does this happen? And everyone's like, don't make eye contact. He's going to look, he's going to ask me a question. Hineni uh, is the opposite. It's jumping up and down and saying, hey, look at me. I am ready and I have what it takes. The word is used in a very specific way through God's story and it accomplishes two things. So in the, in the biblical narrative, this word is accomplishing two things. First of all, it's letting us know that the person calling has the full attention of the character, the protagonist in the story. And, and in the Bible, beyond that, the caller has the full attention of the protagonist whose story is about to change in a dramatic way. So when we hear this word, there is a big significant transformation about to happen in the biblical story. Part two of what it accomplishes is it creates a tension in the reader because we have to wait to find out what the protagonist is about to be asked to do. So there's a change about to happen. It's a declaration by this person that I'm setting myself up for this change. I don't know what it is, 
but I am ready and I'm willing. It's the response to call that says I'm ready to listen and to obey whatever it is that you're calling me to do. Hineni is a word that is a declaration of radical surrender to the purpose and the promise and the instruction of God. And that's why I think it's a fitting word for us as we define our identity as a church and we say, here's where we're going to go next. Are you ready to walk in radical surrender? Are you willing to say, I am ready, God, to leave behind what was before to step into what it is that you're inviting me into today? The first time we see this word is in the mouth of Abraham. And so if you have a Bible, you might want to turn to uh, Genesis 22. This is not the start of Abraham's story, but it's a key transition moment in this story. So up till now, Genesis 12, Abraham was called. That's a radical moment where God says to Abraham, leave your, fam- leave your land, your family, and your people, and you're going to go to a land that, that you've never seen. And, and Abraham responds. So at this point in the story, Abraham is already walking in radical surrender to God. So so he's leaving everything behind. He's on his way to the promised land. He's given this covenant with God that God's going to make him a father of many nations. His name gets changed from Abram to Abraham, which means father of us all. So there's lots of stuff going on in his life. As a man who is walking with God, uh, who is attentive to what God is saying, there's a lot of people in this room Like, this is you, right? You're attentive to God. You've been walking with him. He's called you. Many of you have made big decisions to leave things and and walk forward in what God has called them to do. But you have this moment in chapter 22. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham and he said, Abraham, here I am, he replied, is what the Bible text says. This moment, God calls his name and Abraham's response is, here I am. I'm ready. Give me your best or do your worst. In this moment, it's probably more of a do your worst. What do you think? What do you think he's about to be asked to do after everything he's done already? He says to him, here I am. The the verse goes on. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Abraham, walking in this place of readiness, this place of commitment to the Lord, has this moment where God calls without knowing what he's about to be asked. He says, I'm here and I'm available. Tell me what it is that you want me to do. And God says, I want you to sacrifice. You want to be about me? You want to walk in the plan I have for you? You know the promises I've given you. I've told you, you will have a son, and through this son, I'm going to build many nations. Well, here's what I want for you. You're going to take that son, the one that carries all of the promise that I've given to you, and you're going to let me take him. Are you willing to sacrifice the promise that I've given you and the direction that you think your life is about to head? Abraham, when he says this this phrase, here I am, when he cries out, hineni, He's saying, God, I am willing to sacrifice even the promises that I've been carrying for my life in order to walk in obedience and intimacy with you. He says again, he has another little moment. So we know how the story goes, right? Abraham takes his son up the mountain. There's this uh, amazing moment where he's like, 
uh, anyway, he goes up the mountain. He's willing to sacrifice his son in the middle of this moment where he's, he's got the knife up in the air and he's about to sacrifice this child. You have this moment in chapter 11. The angel of the Lord calls out to him and says, Abraham, Abraham. What's Abraham's response? Here I am. Look at me. Whatever you want, I'll do it. You want me to cut the head off first, the legs? What way do you want? Like, I am ready. He doesn't know that God's going to stop it. Like, we know in the story that God's about to intervene. He doesn't know that. What could be worse than killing my only son? And the angel says, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son. So as we're walking into this new season as a church, as we're looking at the identity that we're walking into, God is inviting you to come and to arise into new purpose and calling. The question is, are you willing to say, here I am, not knowing what it might cost you. Because there's going to be a cost. For some people, it's a financial cost. Are you willing to throw your wealth and riches behind what it is that God is asking us to do? For some of us, it's our time and our talents. Are you willing to give more time uh, to do what God is asking us to do? Are you willing to step into something that makes you uncomfortable? to do what God is calling you to do. For some, it's going to be, there's this thing about Alliance Bible Church that I love, and it's my favorite part of the church. And what if God is saying, I want you to lay that down, and I want us to walk away from that thing in order to become the people that God has called us to be. Are you willing to say, here I am, regardless of what it is God asks us to do next? We don't have to go very far to see the next occurrence of this in Scripture. In chapter 31, Jacob has this encounter with the Lord. And Jacob's story, again, he's, he knows God. He's been walking with them. We've had the story of, of Isaac wanting to, ble- uh, to bless his kids. Jacob intervenes and steals the blessing from his brother. And so he's already deceived a blessing out of people. He's already gotten the the inheritance and the birthright, and he's walking forward, and and he's walking into the things that God has planned. So this is not an unbeliever giving his life to Jesus for the first time. This is the continuation of the life of someone walking with him, and this is verse 11. The angel of the Lord, he's talking about what happened. He's with Laban. If you remember Jacob's story, he goes off in search of a wife. He finds Rachel that he falls in love with. He talks to Laban, hey, I'd like to have Rachel. So on midnight, he goes into the room to sleep with Rachel, and it turns out that it wasn't her. Um, I don't know how he didn't know that. Uh, and he, there's certain activities that happen in conversation and interaction. So I'm like, how did you not know? Um, so he wakes up in the morning, and he's surprised that the woman that he slept with was not the one that he wanted. And Laban says, you're going to have to wait another seven years and work, and then I'll give you Rachel. So he does that, and then Laban keeps changing the rules. Um, And in this time, Jacob wants to leave. He wants to establish his family. He wants to take his wife and go. Uh, And God is using some circumstances to bless him and increase his wealth. But there's this moment where he's talking. Uh, Laban has gotten upset. Jacob's getting too wealthy. He's going to leave, and he's relaying to his wife the situation. And he says, the angel of the Lord said to me in a dream, Jacob. And I answered, here I am. How many of you, when you dream of an angel, your automatic internal dream response is like, I'm here. Are we that conscious of what God is doing when we're sleeping? Here I am. And he said to me, I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. So he's like, I'm ready. What does God call him to do? He calls him to do something that he wants. 
you're going to leave and you're going to go back to your native land, but it's not all like cherry on the top situation because what's he gone back to? The brother who he deceived and stole the blessing and the birthright. So you're going to leave this negative situation and I'm going to send you to the person that you think is going to kill you. He's like, here I am. At the end of his life in, in Genesis 46, God spoke to Israel in a vision. Israel is Jacob. Uh, in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I'm the God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back. So another one of these moments, he's made his way back to where he's supposed to be. There's a famine in the land. God appears to Jacob. We know the Joseph story, right? Joseph is sold into slavery. He's down in Egypt. There's famine in the land. Joseph has been managing the resources in Egypt, and he sends for his brothers to come. At the end of the story, I don't want to give too many spoilers, right? Because you want to read it. Uh, so he comes, he, he sends for, for Jacob. He's like, the brother that you, the son that you thought was dead is here, so come. And J Jacob's nervous. Like, I don't want to leave my family and move to Egypt. And yet before this moment of invitation to leave and go to a land that he doesn't want to be in, his response is, Hineni, God, here I am. I'm ready. Where are you going to send me? What are you going to ask me? I'm going to do it. Are you ready and are you willing? You know, I, I think it's interesting in, in these two stories, Abram becomes Abraham, Jacob becomes Israel. And one of the questions that I keep wrestling with as we look at our church and, and where we are and where we've been and where we're going, there are lots of significant moments like this in Scripture where these characters were, had an identity that they walked in, but God does a significant move in their life tied to a promise. And as a result, He renames them and sends them out with a new identity. And sometimes in my praying and my processing, I'm asking the question, God, is that something you want to do here? Is one of the things you're asking us to do is to leave the old identity behind and choose a new identity that you're going to give us that marks who we are moving forward. Uh, that's one to pray on and see what God might want to say. Third person, I love this one. We all love this one. Moses in chapter 3. So we're in Exodus chapter 3. God calls to him from within the burning bush, Moses, Moses. God likes to say people's name twice if you hadn't noticed. And Moses says, here I am. He has no idea what's about to be asked. And how many of you, if you heard a voice talking to you from a bush that was on fire, are going to be like, I'm ready. Right? Maybe in Oregon. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, this moment, something has gone on. He's intrigued. He walks over. God gets his attention. He calls him by name. And before he knows what's happening, his response is, here I am already. What are you going to ask me to do? The Lord said, I've seen the misery of my people, so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up into good and spacious land. So now go. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. That moment, I'm willing. Joseph is about to be sent to, uh, Joseph, Moses is about to be sent to the enemy of his people, to the palace that he was brought up in where he's hidden his identity as a Jew. And he's going to go and be this instrument to speak to Pharaoh and to lead the people out of the promised land. The simplicity of Moses saying, here I am, sets up the entire Exodus narrative of Scripture that lays the foundation for our whole understanding of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Here I am. 
You can be sitting in this room and God's going, Jenna, Jenna, Seth, Seth. And all it takes is, here I am. You could be the next person God wants to, to, to raise up, to transform his people for this next season of what he wants to do in the world. And it wasn't easy. We know he ends up roaming around the wilderness. At the end of the day, Moses ends up not getting to enter the promised land because he loses his temper at the people that he's called to lead. What if God is calling to you and a simple here I am will change the direction of God's kingdom here in the USA? Fast forward to Samuel. 1 Samuel 3, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. This story grieves my heart. Samuel is growing up in the temple under Eli the priest. And the passage is going to tell us that he didn't know the voice of the Lord. Well, let me read what this says and then we'll go on. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered him. I thought he was saying his name twice, but I guess not. Uh, <laughs> he answered him, here I am. This is a little boy. This is not like Abraham or Jacob or some like seasoned leader. This is a little kid growing up in the temple who has the simple posture of here I am that changes the trajectory of Israel. He goes back, running to Samuel a couple of times. He doesn't know it's God's voice. He goes running to Eli Hey, do you called? No, go lie back down. You called? No, go lie back down. No, you called? Oh, I think God's speaking to you. How can you be raised in the temple of God under the priest and not learn to hear the voice of God? Oh, that's right. It's most of the American church, right? And the British church and the Australian church, right? We've, we've been raised in a way where we, we've lost sight of what it is to hear from God as he speaks in his word and through our experiences and through the community around about us. We've not cultivated enough of that. But the last time the Lord comes in verse 10 and stood there calling as at the other times, he gets it right this time, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel says, speak for your servant is listening. Samuel is ready He's ready to, and that readiness to serve God, do you notice that that readiness to serve God was demonstrated in his readiness to serve the leader that he'd been placed under? And that, that, that's not about me. Um, what is our posture to the people in the world, our bosses, our family, our friends, our church? What is the posture that we walk in? Because we can't walk in a posture that says, God, I'm ready to do whatever if we walk with the people around about us saying, I'll do anything but what that person asks. Speak, for your servant is listening. Are we cultivating this? What goes on from here? Samuel goes on to lead the nation of Israel. He's the last person that leads them through a period of, of, of spiritual health, and all of a sudden from there it's just decline after his death couple more. Isaiah, his call in chapter 6, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who will I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. So God said, go and tell this to the people. Hey, idiots, you're going to hear and you're not going to understand. You're going to hear the words and you're not going to understand it. How many of you want that job? Actually, lots of us like that job. It's called Twitter, right? <laughs> we just like to spread about how no one knows what they're talking about. 
But this moment, like, I'm willing, I'm willing to do whatever. You're going to stand up in front of my people, and you're to declare, to declare my truth, and they're not going to receive it. They don't want to hear it. They're not going to understand it. Your whole ministry is going to set the way for our understanding of Jesus the Messiah, right? It's, we're about to walk into Advent, and we read half of Isaiah and understand what it was that Jesus did and who he was. This simple here I am gave us the book of Isaiah that helps us understand who Jesus is. He spoke all these negative declarations over Israel that were calling them, pointing out their sin and calling them back to the heart of God. Painful work. Uh, and some listened, many didn't. But are you willing? God, here I am, send me. There's people in this room, you won't even say no to the person sitting next to you. What hope do you have of standing on a, on a wall of the White House to declare to all of America that you're, you're, you're walking away from the Lord? This is a big calling. I'm hoping you're seeing these are big things that they've been asked to step into. That's the last Old Testament one. I want to look at uh, a New Testament one, and we've been here before. Ananias in Acts chapter 9. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, only once, he's not cool enough. And he said, here I am, Lord. I told him, what I want you to do is go to Straight Street and ask for the guy that's trying to kill you and all your friends knock on the door and be ready to go in and pray for him because I've chosen him to be my people. So Ananias, a normal believer sitting in a room in his home, says to God, here I am, and gifts us the apostle Paul, ready to take the gospel to the entire known world. Write a chunk of the New Testament and influence so much of this word that we cherish. I want to hit one last one, and it's not the word here I am, it's not anywhere near, but the posture is the same, and it's important because it's a little girl called Mary, Luke chapter 1. God appears to her and says, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you, and you're going to be with child, and her response was, here I am, right? I'm your servant, may it be to me as you have said, no idea the bullying and the name-calling she would receive, no idea the pain that she would carry in her heart as she watched her son brutally murdered for stuff he didn't do. I wanted to put her in because it's not just men, <laughs> but perhaps the most important of all of those descriptions in Scripture is Mary. All of the other people were asked to go somewhere and do something. Mary was asked to be something. Are you willing not to go to a new land, not to declare a truth? Are you willing to give up your body to house the Son of God? And are you willing to endure the pain of having the child that you cherish brutally tortured in front of your eyes? I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me just as you have said. So, hineni, here I am. This is the invitation as we wrap up today. As we walk through this series and we're saying this is who we're going to be as a church, this is the principles that we're going to wrap ourselves around, the posture we're going to try and walk in, the practices that we're going to choose to embed, and, and then there's a bunch of initiatives that we're going to try and walk in as we go, into the, go forward as a church. The question is, are you willing to pray this prayer? It's only three words and it's super simple. Are you willing to say to God, here I am, don't know what it's going to look like, 
It's probably going to hurt at times, but I am willing to do whatever it is you call us, and I'm willing to throw myself behind this church and where we're going. But more than that, God, this is the posture of my life. Whatever you want, wherever you want it, whatever it costs, I am willing. Let me pray. God, this is an exciting time in the life of the church. God, you've called us. I mean, looking around today, there's life, there's energy, there's full seats. There's people last week who came with vision and ideas and, and were frustrated because we want to be let loose to do the things that you're calling us to do. But God, what you need is a room of people who are willing to say, here I am. I've said many times, your eyes range throughout the whole earth looking for people. God, we're saying, here I am. We're willing to throw our money where you want it to go. We're willing to throw our time and energy where you want it to go. God, we're willing to walk into conflict. We're willing to try and reconcile broken relationships. Lord, we're willing to go to the ends of the earth and sacrifice our life for you, if that's what you call us to. So, God, as we move from here into 2022, would you work in us and help us to say, God, here I am. Send me. In Jesus' name. Amen.